the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to this Wednesday edition of The Dan Proft Show. Thank you for joining us. Follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media at danproftshow. Day one of the uh, impeachment trial 2.0, and it wasn't exactly inherit the wind, was it? The combination of uh, Dem House Manager Jamie Raskin's sentimentality and Trump defense attorney's sort of um, non-germane stemwinders, particularly that of Bruce Castor, unhelpful. Not that it changes the outcome, although Trump's defense attorneys were able to accomplish one thing. They moved one Republican senator to the other side. That would be Bill Cassidy of Louisiana. We'll hear from him momentarily. But uh, first, Raskin and Castor with a response. And uh, it's a reminder, and we'll talk to Andy McCarthy a little bit later in the show on this. It's a reminder that this is political, not legal. But you still have to make legal arguments as a basis to advance your political flag. Um, no, neither side did a very good job of that, in my estimation. Jamie Raskin first. And when they were finally rescued over an hour later by Capitol officers and we were together, I hugged them and I apologized. And I told my daughter, Tabitha, who's 24 and a brilliant algebra teacher in Teach for America. Now, I told her how sorry I was. And I promised her that it would not be like this again the next time she came back to the Capitol with me. And you know what she said? She said, Dad, I don't want to come back to the Capitol. (laughs) Of all the terrible, brutal things I saw and I heard on that day, and since then, that one hit me the hardest. And Castor's response. Before I begin, I, I want to comment on the uh, outstanding presentation from our opponents and the, uh, the emotion that certainly welled up uh, in Congressman Raskin about his family being here during that terrible day. And you will not hear any member of the team representing former President Trump say anything but in the strongest possible way denounce the violence of the rioters and those that breached the Capitol. The very- yeah, it's a perfect uh, case study in uh, how the Democrat socialists play and how the Republicans play. Sentimentality of a uh, honestly a barbaric sort. I'm sorry that Jamie Raskin uh, suffered a loss of, of, a, of a child in his family, but that doesn't mean he gets a pass on that sort of sophistry. But that's what you get, sentimental barbarism from the left and reflexive defensiveness from Republicans 
and they wonder why they get their clocks cleaned. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined uh, again by Jim Antley. He is the Washington Examiner's politics editor, author of Devouring Freedom, Can Big Government Ever Be Stopped? Jim, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Good to be here. I, I guess I should correct myself. Uh, it seems like Jamie Raskin not only convinced Bill Cassidy to flip sides, but he but he just about convinced Bruce Castor to do so. Yes, that's right. And it, it really does show what the the president, the former president that is, is up against here is in that his own defense team doesn't really seem to be on his side. Now, the the weaknesses of some of these lawyers notwithstanding, it is always difficult to be essentially making a process argument, a constitutional argument, and have that going up against an emotional argument. Uh, and clearly what the House Democratic impeachment managers are trying to do is make it as difficult as possible for Republican senators to vote to acquit former President Trump. They're they're, they're going to try to evoke all these emotions in them and Uh, exact the biggest political price that, that, that they can exact. And President Trump's lawyers just don't seem equipped to deal with any of that. No, I know. I mean, maybe there's somebody around that could give them some advice and counsel, like uh, all those Republican senators who are planning to vote to acquit. I, I you, to, to provide some additional cover for them. I mean, obviously, in, in they'll have their opportunity to make their own cases, but it would be nice if they were buttressed by Trump's legal defense team. And it seems to me it's not that complicated. The Democrats have no moral high ground on the violence on January 6th. Because uh, we Republicans have consistently condemned political violence, uh, whether it was last summer or into the fall in, in America's cities, or whether it was on January 6th. Nobody is defending what the, the people who committed acts of violence on January 6th did. So who are you addressing? Right. You're making an argument against uh, a constituency that doesn't exist. No, I think that's right. Uh, it, it seems to me to the degree that there is any strategy on the Trump legal defense team. And remember, this is the inherent disadvantage uh, that you face when you do these post-presidential impeachments, is that you know if, if Trump were still in office, he would have the full resources of the White House counsel and the White House legal team behind him in his defense. Uh, fortunately for him, he's a wealthy man. Uh, but the, the Democrats, in pursuing this, have all of the resources of the House of Representatives behind them, and so they they clearly can do. Uh, they're, so they're at an advantage there, and they clearly can do things that that are are better equipped politically uh, than the Trump legal defense team. But the one thing I think, that if they have a strategy, it's essentially to run out the clock. They know mm-hmm. that their Democrats are nowhere near 67 votes, not terribly likely to get there. Uh, but that's a risky strategy, especially if, if you know, your, your jurors in this are people who look at polls and look at polls all the time. And if you're not presenting something that is going to stop those polls from potentially moving uh, in, in an unfavorable direction, uh, you do have at least some risk yeah. uh, that you could have more Bill Cassidy's on your hands. Completely agree. I mean, you can't just sit there and be a, a, a pincushion, and that seems to be the, the strategy, like you said. It's problematic. It, it seems to me we know what the Democrats are trying to do here, recognizing there's little chance they'll secure a conviction, um, that you know that Trump is a unifying figure, and they want to continue to use him as a boogeyman to unify their ranks. 
what what is what is it Republicans think they can get out of this and how they plan to pivot after this, whether in the House and the Senate or both, to the extent that there's actually coordination and communication between the two? Well, I think one argument that Republicans are making beyond the constitutional one is that this is simply a waste of time and that there's other things to do. There's COVID, there's the economy, uh, there are all the campaign promises that, that Biden has made and his pledges uh, for bipartisan unity, and instead we're spending time impeaching a president who's already out of office. Uh, and, you know, I, I think that they're going to continue to press that argument. I do think uh, that will resonate with, with some people, but clearly a uh, very few of them want to engage on the merits of the issue. And the Republicans are split on what they want to see happen to Trump in the political future, which is, I think, the biggest risk for the Trump legal team is that you do have a subset of, of Republican senators who they probably won't vote to convict, but they really wouldn't be that sad if, if Trump were barred from ever running for office again. They wouldn't be bothered by the party turning the page on Trump. And there is a subset of, of, of Republicans who don't want to turn the page on Trump. So the party is divided against itself, really even on that most basic fundamental question. Oh, well, and, and is the party united in terms of how they're going to approach Biden with an eye towards 22? I mean, it's it's one thing to be forever uh, worrying about uh, what Trump is going to do post-presidency. It's another thing to... Uh, focus on the task at hand going forward, and that's trying to regain the House and Senate in 22. Well, and they're they're well positioned to do that, provided that they don't, you know, flub the opportunities presented to them. You know, they are only they needed a net gain of one seat in the Senate. They need about seven seats in the House. These these are historically very small majorities, and it, it will be difficult for Biden to really pass much of his legislative agenda uh, if there's even modest defections among Democrats. Uh, so Republicans are well positioned. Certainly if midterm elections uh, go as they normally do for a president in their first term, it would not be very difficult to win back at least the House. Senate map is a little more challenging, but still the numbers are not that daunting overall. Uh, and, and they have done a lot of things in terms of identifying the seats and districts they'd really like to contest and recruiting candidates. The question is, will they settle on a message? And I think so far the message is that Biden is a liberal and not a unifier, which is a starting point, but I'm not sure it, it's, it's the end point. He is Jim Antle, Washington Examiner's politics editor, author of Devouring Freedom, Can Big Government Ever Be Stopped? Jim, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you for having me. Take care. Who takes every kind of people To make what life's about, yeah It takes every Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, Jason Riley, Wall Street Journal columnist, an ed board member on schools. Data from a website that aggregates test score results finds 23 of the top 30 schools in New York in 2019 in terms of performance were charters. 
He writes, the feat is all the more impressive because those schools sported student bodies that were more than 80% black and Hispanic, and some two-thirds of the kids qualified for freer or discount lunches, meaning you know they qualified financially. Uh, the Empire State's results were reflected nationally. U.S. News and World Report ranking released for 2019. Three of the top 10 public high schools in the country were charters, as were 23 of the top 100, even though charters make up only 10% of the nation's 24,000 public high schools. He also tackles some of the arguments made against charters by teachers' union apparatchiks that students, uh, the charter schools succeed by, by handpicking the best students. Well, in point of fact, 43 states have charter schools. All but three mandate lotteries be used to choose students randomly. Not true. And also, if uh, it's uh, the poverty and segregation and systemic racism that is preventing black and brown kids from succeeding in school, then how do you account for, for example, the performance of those charter schools that are majority minority? So, yeah, the arguments just continue to melt away. And to some extent, you say, well, when is it going to happen? And I guess this is sort of like the opposite of the big short, the crash. When is it going to happen? When's the housing bubble going to burst? And the famous line, it's happening. You just haven't felt it yet. And so the flip side of that is when is it going to happen? School choice, the expansion of competition, the embrace of charter schools. Uh, it's happening. Maybe you haven't felt it yet. It's not uh, where it should be. As I say, 10% of the nation's 24,000 public schools being charters. Not as many states have opportunity scholarship programs as should. They're not as expansive as they should be, but it's happening. And the, the question that Riley posed in his piece is, has the teachers' union or the teachers' unions writ large nationwide, have they finally overplayed their hands in places like Chicago? For more on the topic, we're pleased to be joined by former Wisconsin governor and current president and CEO of Young America's Foundation, Scott Walker. Governor Walker, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Great to be with you. So Milwaukee was sort of the uh, ground zero for the school choice movement back in the early 90s, Polly Williams and Governor Tommy Thompson, and that whole movement to introduce choice and give uh, poor, largely minority families the same options as uh, wealthier families around uh, Milwaukee. And uh, so Wisconsin's been a leader on that issue. And I just wonder what your answer to Jason Riley's question is. Have the teachers unions finally overplayed their hand during this pandemic? Absolutely. You see it nowhere greater than in Chicago, but we see it elsewhere as well. In New York, in uh, Fairfax County, Virginia, across the nation. I was pleased to be a part of that in the 90s with Tommy Thompson. Actually, was part of the second wave early in the 90s that not only expanded vouchers to low-income families starting the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, but expanding it to include religious faith-based schools, which has been a huge boom for families now, not only in Milwaukee, but as governor, I pushed to expand it statewide, and it's been phenomenal. It puts power in the hands of the parents to make the right decision. I think in general, not just because of the teachers union, but at a time when people are wondering, parents are wondering, you know, why can't my kids go back to school? It's a great time to say, well, instead of giving the government all the money for education, let's just give each parent a fixed amount, let he or she or that family go out and pick what's right for their child. In most cases, it's going to be in person, but in other instances, it might be virtual, but let them make that decision. That's exactly right. And the results, as you were just talking about, uh, speak for themselves, not only in Wisconsin, but across the nation. Well, exactly. And I don't understand why this doesn't isn't more of a central issue for the Republican Party. That's just relentlessly drum beating on this, particularly when you have divisions within Democrat ranks. And I'm not just talking about uh, some mayors and some teachers unions. I'm talking about some mayors and some teachers unions and Joe Biden. Joe 
Biden saying, uh, you know, maybe we should try to get back to one day a week in-person learning as a sop to the unions. So that really, if you press on these mayors, including in the suburbs and suburban school districts, the parents. And so so is this the path you want to chart that you have teachers unions aligned with your federal leadership, the people in control of the federal government to say one day of in-person learning is enough to strike the balance between the interests of the teachers unions and the kids. This seems like a golden opportunity to advance the substance of the issue as well as the politics. Well, and I think they need to even go further. I mean, remember a week ago, the CDC director for all this hype over the last year about science and science deniers, who are the science deniers now? The CDC director got up at a White House press briefing on COVID-19 and said it is absolutely safe for students and staff to go back, even if the teachers haven't been fully vaccinated. Within hours, the White House press secretary, you know, said, well, she was really speaking in her own personal capacity. She was listed as the CDC director at a White House press briefing. And yet, because it was the blowback they got from the teachers union, I said, you're not an essential worker if you can't show up when it's essential. And in America, the teachers unions or any union should be calling the shots. It should ultimately be the American people. And that's what's just so frustrating here is the science overwhelmingly says that kids and staff are safe. And in fact, you know it in Chicago, the Catholic schools have been back in school since last fall. That's been true in New York and elsewhere across the country. I was just with someone last night who's with a Catholic school in Milwaukee, and she said the only people on their staff they had troubles were were people who got COVID, not through school, but through interacting with other people outside of school where they weren't following the protocols. So if you follow the protocols, there's no reason why kids and staff can't be safe at school. Uh, I want to get to your uh, tenure at Young America's Foundation, what uh, what that's going to look like, the fights you're going to take up in an environment where the names of Lincoln and Washington are being removed from schools. And even it just in Western civilization generally, Churchill and J.K. Rowling's names are also being removed from schools across the pond. Um, how Young America's Foundation is going to uh, battle against the effort to uh, rewrite American history. It is absolutely crazy out there. I saw last night the Dallas Mavericks now are no longer going to play the national anthem. It used to be the American flag and the national anthem were those civic rituals that brought everyone together. You know, when they played the national anthem, every American stood. Those were things that were passed on from one generation to the next, and they united us as a country. And Ronald Reagan warned about this back in 1989, his farewell address. If we weren't vigilant towards passing on that pride in our country, it was going to pass. And sadly, he was right. And that's where our goal is we do well with the students we reach. I just want to reach more. When I see these numbers embracing socialism, we're going to have a presence on every campus, more than 4,000 in America. We're going to delve even deeper into high school. We're going to start a junior high program. Uh, we've got the Reagan Ranch, which is pretty cool. Reagan's actual ranch out in uh, Santa Barbara, California, where we have conferences. I'm going today to Dixon, Illinois, where we just took over the boyhood home of President Reagan, another place we're going to bring in speakers and conferences. And we're going to take our YouTube. In fact, if people want to join us, youtube.com slash TV. Tomorrow night at 7 Central, we're going to be talking about how the reforms that saved uh, Wisconsin 10 years ago can help save America. So there's a lot of different ways. Big speakers on campus like Ben Shapiro and Michael Knowles, we're going to do even more of that future. But there's just so much to be done. And what we find is if young people hear the truth, the truth works. Conservative, common sense thought works. We just know that they're trying to cancel it on campus and culture. And even with big tech and our communications, we cannot let that happen.
I, I uh, leaned on Young America's Foundation many, many years ago when I was an undergrad at Northwestern to bring in speakers on campus to expand the debate there. It's a great organization. Uh, Ron Robinson, before you, did a great job, and glad that uh, you're uh, at the helm. Scott Walker, former Wisconsin governor, president and CEO of Young America's Foundation. Thanks, Scott. Have a great one. Political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. A good piece uh, by Lee Smith, the investigative reporter. He does a lot of work for RealClearInvestigations.com and other outlets. Uh, This one in tablet, The 30 Tyrants. And he uh, lays out in painstaking detail the connections between uh, what have now become American oligarchs and Chinese communists. He was on Tucker Carlson the other night to talk about his piece. And here's what he said about those who exercise outsized control of our government, our culture, our lives in America. Yeah, I mean, basically what I wanted to explain is I wanted to explain why so many things look crazy uh, many things, for instance, that you cover on your show all the time. For instance, tonight, why people are coming across the why people are coming across the border in such profound numbers. It all looks crazy until you realize there's a reason it's going on, and the reason is is because the oligarchy that runs this country now is not primarily loyal to the United States. They do not care about the amount of damage they do to America. They don't care about the amount of damage they do to Americans. That's part of the system. Their primary loyalty is to their relationship to the communist Chinese party. That is their center of gravity. It's the source of their wealth, privilege, and prestige. That's sort of an astounding statement, isn't it? That uh, the oligarchs, those household names that run multi-billion dollar companies, their main loyalty is to Chinese communists. But uh, Lee Smith provided a little bit of a taste, and you can get more of it if you read that piece and and his piece in the tablet, which I'll tweet out. Uh, He provided some of the uh, details to uh, buttress his case. They looked at an enormous, cheap labor pool, and they said, we're going to get rich. And that's precisely what happened. uh, We are more than a quarter of a century along, and that's precisely what's happened. Now, one of the interesting things that happened during during the Donald Trump presidency, because Donald Trump started calling these people out, I think that Donald Trump didn't even have that clear a sense of how tied in, how extensive this network was. One of the examples I I, I mentioned is, for instance, whoever would have put uh, Apple CEO Tim Cook and LeBron James in the same family album. But there they are, sure enough, because they both rely, uh, their wealth relies on the two same things, cheap Chinese labor and a growing Chinese consumer market. If you look across, this is not just, it's not just entertainment. It's not just tech. Uh, it goes into the corporate worlds. It goes into finance. Unfortunately, it, it affects our government throughout. One of the most astonishing revelations was a, was a memo that former DNI John Ratcliffe wrote uh, regarding, uh, regarding the CIA, regarding their intelligence analysis. CIA management... Uh, was apparently bullying analysts saying they didn't like their analysis of China because they were worried about the policies it might encourage, meaning Donald Trump's policies, who was hard on on China. Therefore, CIA management 
was protecting China from solid analysis. It's astonishing, but take it one step further. Remember who owns... Uh, who owns the cloud on which all of the CIA's information is collected. And that's Jeff Bezos, who is China's number one distributor in the United States. Is it any wonder why in 2020, 57% of Republicans say they were satisfied with big business? This year, according to Gallup's annual survey, 31%. Part of that's the culture war coming from the C-suites. Part of that is sort of an intuitive understanding, I think, of what Lee Smith is talking about without having all the details put together that he has put together and uh, the basis for more details hopefully to be put together. For a discussion on this topic, as well as COVIDnomics, we're pleased to be joined again by Steve Moore, Wall Street Journal columnist, Trumponomics author. Steve, thanks for joining us. Hi, Dan. What about uh, what uh, Lee Smith outlined there? I think that China certainly has huge impact on what corporate America is doing. And and it's not necessarily inappropriate. Like this is a giant consumer market with 1.2 billion people. As they become a middle-class country, we obviously want to sell our stuff to them. It makes sense that companies want to get into that market. So I don't have a problem with that kind of activity. What worries me is that we are in a you know, race for economic supremacy with China. There's no question about it. China does want to take over as the economic superpower. And the race is on, folks. And we better start taking competitiveness seriously. And we're not doing that. I mean, Joe Biden, everything he has done so far has been to put America last, not America first. I and mean, we're not building pipelines. We're not drilling on our federal lands where we have you know, trillions of dollars of assets. We are, uh, you know, putting more and more regulations on. We're re-entering the the Paris Climate Accord, which is, you know, China is laughing at us for that. They they don't have to change their behavior and and all the costs are imposed on us. We better take this seriously or we're going to end up like, you know, the Kansas City Chiefs against the uh, against the Buccaneers on uh, Sunday night. All right, Steve, let's hold it there. And when we come back, I I want to pick up on what you were saying about China and tie it to the Biden administration taking a sort of China-first approach. More with economist and uh, Wall Street Journal columnist Steve Moore right after this. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with economist, Wall Street Journal columnist, Trumponomics author Steve Moore about uh, Biden's COVIDnomics. And Steve, I want to get your take on this. It seems the Biden administration's approach towards the co- economy that uh, Chinese communists do, a command control, you know, quasi-capitalist economy where the point is to get through transfer payments or funny money people to a certain comfort level where you can run roughshod over them. They don't care about their uh, their, their liberties so much, their opportunities, so long as they have a certain comfort level. Uh, the kicker, of course, is that the Chinese communists are not bounded by concerns about the well-being of their constituents so, or things or silliness like the Paris Accords. They don't have to deal with, uh, you know, young socialists on college campuses and in corporate boardrooms that are virtue signaling. They don't have our politics. So they just plow over people, literally, in some cases, where we're sort of now have the best worlds, the, the, the worst of both worlds, I should say. We have the cultural Marxists that are being catered to, and we have the Chinese communist economic model that's being pursued by the administration. 
So first of all, you know, I I do not think that China is going to take over the world because the central planning model that you just described, Dan, quite accurately, doesn't work. And we know it's going to crash and burn because when you have politicians, whether they're politicians in Washington, D.C., or politicians in Beijing making the decisions, it crashes and burns. I mean, that's the single most important economic lesson of history. It's never worked anywhere, anytime, and we're going to try it again in the United States. And, you know, what frustrates me, Dan, you know, for example, I've been doing a lot of work, as you guys know, in the energy industry. And the arrogance of these, you know, people like Jen Pazaki and, and Biden and, and John Kerry, and, and they go into these places like in West Virginia, say, oh, we're going to close down all the coal, coal mines. And, and then they go into the oil patch in Texas. Oh, sorry, you're not going to make oil and gas anymore. But you know what, folks? They're going to make solar panels. <laughs> these people are like, going, what the hell are they talking about? And by the way, do you know what the solar – there was a great study that just came out. We've had these programs for like 15 years to help those coal miners whose jobs we killed because we can't use coal. You know what these guys make now? $14 an hour. <laughs> you know, yeah, they were making sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year, and now they're making fourteen dollars. Gee, thank you, Joe Biden. I want to be a solar panel installer. Yeah, but I mean, my question, like, but my question is, see, my question is, is crashing the economy a bug or a feature? Uh, my point is to say uh, whether yeah. it's whether it's mandates uh, uh, for COVID tests that would crater the airlines or whether it is the energy policy or whether it is just Joe Biden poor mouthing the economy. James Freeman, your colleague at Wall Street Journal, had a good piece yeah. about this. Why is Joe Biden talking about a dark winter when the Labor Department reported six point six million job openings in December? Yeah. There's a reason he's poor mouthing the economy is because that's of the course. way you get to spend. You get to print and spend two trillion dollars in funny money and continue to consolidate all things at the federal level. Yeah, I've only been saying that for four months. Yeah, well, of course, that's exactly what they're right. doing. They, you know, we have an economy that's on the mend. We don't need one point one trillion. We don't need one point five trillion. We don't need one point nine trillion, folks. We need zero, zero. I mean, if Milton Friedman were alive today, say we should be cutting government spending and, and getting rid of the barriers and burdens of government. And yet, you're exactly right. This is precisely their strategy. They're coming in and they're saying, oh, my God, it's the greatest crisis in the history of the United States. We've got to spend $1.9 trillion. We've got to do it immediately, right now. So don't wait one more minute. Spend this $1.9 trillion. And, and by the way, there's $1 trillion they haven't even already spent. That's how insane this is, folks. These people are out of control. $1 trillion that we just passed, what, a month ago, hasn't even been spent yet. And they want to spend another $1.9 trillion. By the way, the allocations just came out last night. Dan. You may, may not have had a chance to look at the numbers. But I think it's like $20 billion for, I'll have to look this up, but it's, it's billions and billions of dollars to Illinois. So I know you'll, you'll sleep well. Here it is. I've got it right here. Uh, how much does Illinois get? They get, yeah, you know, something like $10 billion. So, you know, gee, well, how can you turn that down? Of course, you know, the federal government can only give money to states if it does take state money from other states. Uh, okay, so then, yeah. so then it's a feature, not a bug. This is purposeful. It's purposeful to a particular end. It's not purposeful because they think this is going to be good policy. It's purposeful because they think this is going to enhance their ability to exercise control. Yeah. And so, we're, we're not. So, yeah. but, but but then you're, at the same time, you're you're conceding that you're saying, well, China is not going to overtake us because our central planners are better than their central planners. What I'm saying is we're still not as big centers as they are. I mean, they, well, they do have real 
Not they yet. do have real central planning. <laughs> yeah, we are moving in that direction. There's no question uh, about and, that. And, and by but, the way, re- Republicans are, you know, especially those uh, Republicans celebrated by the press for being anti-Trump, like Mitt Romney, are moving in that direction, too. Uh, Romney introduced the Family Security Act last week, which would provide yeah. uh, child uh, payments payments for children, $350 a month for every child, uh, a family raising under the age of five, 250 for every child between the age of six and 17, up to 1250 a month. Uh, in addition to these benefits, new parents would collect a $1,400 one-time payment just before their child's birth. In some, the parents of a child born next year could receive up to $62,000 in child support from Uncle Sam by the time the kid turns 18 if Romney's bill became law. And why wouldn't it be with this Congress and this president? So, uh, by the way, I just got the absolute correct number, so I want to be exactly accurate. Illinois will get, you ready for this, guys? Ready to party? $13.2 billion. Yeah. Ten, thirteen billion. billion. Congratulations. You won the lottery, folks. And uh, so you get thirteen two billion. And by the way, uh, you know California gets forty billion dollars. So gee, it's all going to the blue states. What a shock! Uh, I'm sorry. What was your question? Uh, <laughs> your uh, question Mitt Romney and his Family Security Act, oh, sixty two uh, grand you know, for a child born next year in, yeah, in we're lifetime just, we're benefits. Just free money, folks. I mean, you know, this is I, I'm doing these estimates with uh, with Casey Mullen. We're estimating that a, the person for not working with the family credits with the, uh, you know, $1,400 additional payments, with the unemployment benefits, with the increased food stamps, with the expanded Medicaid, you know, you can make about $60,000 a year this year, folks, for not working. Why is anybody working? Why do you get up early in the morning and do that job? You can make $60,000 for doing nothing. Yeah, for the love of the game. Um, the, yeah, uh, for the love of the game. Yeah, so, so, so again, yeah, so now, so now, like, this is a serious point. Most of us do love our jobs. We want to be productive. We want to be you know, feel like we have a mission in life. But there are a lot of people who don't. And a lot of people have really tough jobs. You know, we have jobs we love. But if you're a truck driver or, you're, you know, you're a construction worker, those are tough jobs. And we're going to pay people more money for not working than the people who are delivering things, the construction workers, the people working in nursing homes. Folks, that's not fair. It's not smart. And it's going to hurt our economy. We're going to, we're going to, have, we're going to have 40 million unemployed people and we're going to have 8 million open jobs. Yeah, and um, many of those unemployed people will be unemployed and loving it, and that's the real long-term problem. He is Steve Moore, Wall Street Journal columnist, Trumponomics author. Steve, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thank you. Listen to podcast of the show at danproftshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Uh, Steve Moore mentioned in passing as we were talking about China before the break. Mark Cuban, the uh, owner of the Dallas Mavericks, uh, quietly making the decision that has not uh, bubbled to the surface until now to eliminate the tradition of playing the anthem before Dallas Mavericks home games. It'd be interesting how that plays in Dallas. I mean, Texas is conservative. Dallas, uh, you know, more cosmopolitan, which is what the left likes to say about itself. So, you know, it's a Democrat, big Democrat city. The move, uh, New York Post reports, went unnoticed through the first 13 combined preseason and regular season games in American Airlines Center because the Mavericks didn't publicize it. And uh, this past Monday marked the first game in which the Mavs allowed a limited number of fans into the arena. Of course, Cuban 
being the uh, media whore that he is, left-wing cipher, uh, was supportive of the kneel-downs during the anthem last year and criticized people who were critical of him as the national anthem police. Sure. Mm-hmm. And so uh, this, I guess, is not surprising. Uh, the way that you uh, avoid having to confront the mob is you just concede to the mob. And we see this all over America's landscape in corporate America and our civic institutions, certainly in K through 12 and and on college campuses. So, uh, of course, why not sports? And uh, you w- uh, won't be surprised to learn here is the uh, new anthem that will be played before Mavs games, home Mavs games. And, uh, you know, it's got a familiar ring. Certainly to LeBron James it does. It's a classic called March of the Volunteers. Take a listen. There you go. You know, make President Xi and the Chinese Communists feel at home if they attend a Mavs game. Uh, how many Salem hosts do you think would play an excerpt from the Chinese National Anthem on their show? That's me. Uh, by the way, if you actually want to enjoy something uh, that is uh, edifying about America and sports-related, since you can't really experience it much in the real world of sports, I suggest a movie uh, just out uh, called Born to be a Champion, Sean Patrick Flannery plays a American Muay Thai martial arts teacher who uh, uh, tries his hand at a professional MMA fighting. It's, uh, it's really a good movie, uh, amazingly good. And by the way, Sean Patrick Flannery, when you see it, you'll appreciate it even more. I guess he has a background in martial arts, and he's been involved in martial arts for a long time. But the shape that guy is in at 55 years old is just remarkable. So forget uh, watching the NBA, which is a crap product anyway. Maybe the Chinese communists like it. Uh, I think Americans less and less uh, do. Um, And, uh, you know, check out uh, the world of uh, make-believe or even partial make-believe loosely based on real events. Born to be a champion is worth checking out in lieu of watching the NBA. This is Dan Prop. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. The Biden administration so far a one-two-three punch, actually, to middle-income Americans, as advertised. So I'm not going to pretend to be surprised, but the combination of environmental policy plus economic policy, which, of course, economic policy is part of all of these other policy areas, but plus border security policy, immigration policy. So we've got the uh, cancellation of the Keystone Pipeline with uh, other proposed pipelines possibly to be canceled, too, something that uh, even Richard Trumka, the president of the AFL-CIO, has criticized. You've got the push for the $15 minimum wage, which, as we recounted yesterday, per an op-ed from a restaurateur in Delaware who voted for Joe Biden to save the country, and now saying, if he passes the $15 minimum wage, my restaurant can't survive. Hmm. Mugged by reality of 
the policy implications that were looked past in assessing just personality. Hmm. Cautionary tale there. And, of course, with respect to immigration policy, uh, you have uh, this recurring issue of middle-income Americans not just being pushed out of jobs. That's, that's, that's one issue. But the other thing is just on the hook for benefit levels, on the hook for benefit levels for people in this country illegally, such that the Biden administration's posture seems to make seems to be to make no distinction in terms of benefits accessible between American citizens and those in this country illegally. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by David Seminara, who's written about this in the City Journal. He's a former diplomat and author of the forthcoming books, Footsteps of Federer, a fan's pilgrimage across seven Swiss cantons and ten acts, and Mad Travelers, a tale of wanderlust, greed, and the quest to reach the ends of the earth. Uh, his books are available for pre-order at Dave Seminara, Dave, S-E-M-I-N-A-R-A, DaveSeminara.com. Dave, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Hey, thanks for having me back on the show, Dan. So uh, that was the, a very gloomy introduction there. Well, I mean, uh, one. yeah, yeah no, <laughs> I know. I know. Jump in the uh, in the pool here. Well, you know, I mean, um, I don't know. I, I, it's it's it's, my, it's that darn econ one hundred and one education or class I took, and it's it's some of the lessons stuck, and that's really what we're talking about here is mainly just econ one hundred and one, and what we're ceding to the federal government. Uh, the management of our economy, uh, as we were talking a little bit earlier in the show about with Steve Moore, and that means government in the business of picking winners and losers. And guess what? The losers continue to be over and over again middle-income Americans. That's right. It's perfect sense to me. Yeah. Um, if what yeah. you want is complete chaos, if what you want to do is harm the the most vulnerable people in the country, the unemployed, the marginally employed, the people who are out of the labor force want to get back into the labor force. I mean, if you're looking to make their lives even more difficult, that'd be a good way to do it. Or if you're, you know, as you said, a struggling restaurant owner, let's say you're, you own a restaurant in Chicago, you've been forced to, to close down for periods of time, you've had limited capacity, you've had outdoor dining, and now you're supposed to increase, even for tipped employees, the tipped employee minimum wage up to 15 by 2025. Um, well, how tempting is it going to be for all of these entrepreneurs who are, you know, honest people but are just trying to survive? to hire uh, illegals. I mean, it's going to be yet another incentive. The higher, the more you raise the minimum wage and the less enforcement you have. I mean, these days, ICE agents are allowed to do what? Basically, they're just playing Scrabble in their offices. I mean, the only people they can deport under all these new flurry of executive orders are essentially serial killers. And even and even some of those serial killers uh, uh, might be released. Who knows? So, well, and, um, and, it, and the other thing, too, this is against the backdrop of what, what some projections that we've lost one-fifth of the restaurants in America. Uh, and so, so right. this is this is a way to encourage uh, entrepreneurs right. either to reopen or new entrepreneurs to come in and take a chance sure. running a restaurant, just to, to name one sector. Well, would you like to hire an American um, at fifteen dollars per hour to wash dishes in your restaurant when you've been losing money for the last year, or would you like to, you know, hire someone who's just come in from Guatemala and will do it for five an hour? Right. Yeah, and, know, that, and, that, and unfortunately, that, that's going to be a choice that a lot of really honest entrepreneurs who don't want to break the law that's a choice that a lot of them are going to be making in the coming months well and it, and it goes back to you know for the champagne socialists the the how thick is your bubble question that uh, people were asking after the 2016 election well fifteen dollars you know i make this much fifteen dollars i mean that's a pittance of course we should mandate that well you know you try and operate that um that the diner in wilmington delaware where you're currently as you were talking about tipped employees are like 223 an hour and now you're going to mandate a 400% increase in their hourly wage plus tips plus, you know, and, and, and try to build that into your overhead, which is a, you know, relatively low margin business. 
I mean, certainly grocery stores are, as we found out in Long Beach, California, but even restaurants, too, when you talk, when you build in all of the costs. Right. No, I mean, you, what you just pointed out here, what, there's a new term for this. It was coined by a gentleman named Rob Henderson, who's a very smart guy. It's called luxury belief. A luxury belief is something yeah. that the upper classes have in order to gain status. So they can say, for example, oh, isn't it wonderful to let in all of the refugees from who are fleeing uh, as they say, poverty and violence, but in most cases they're just looking for jobs from Central America. Wonderful to let them in because that's another person I can have who can, you know, serve as a nanny to my kids or can, you know, mop my floors and such. And because it doesn't affect them because their children are in expensive, you know, private schools. They're not in the struggling public schools where, where that are struggling where, where these uh, people will go. So it's, you know, it's a luxury belief. Open borders is a luxury belief. And increasing the minimum wage to 15 or $20 is a luxury belief because uh, the upper classes will not be uh, negative impl- in, uh, impacted by that. But the, but the person who's looking for these entry-level jobs, and even, you know, even people who are from, you know, middle-class families will be impacted too because, for example, um, you know, my children are 11 and 13 years old, but, you know, we live here in Florida, and Florida... Uh, you can start working in, in certain places when you're 14 and 15 years old. Like in grocery stores, you can bag groceries and things of that nature. Do you really think that somebody's going to want to hire my kids, you know, for their first job when they're 14, 15 years old? If they've got to pay them $15 an hour, it'll be very difficult for teenagers to get that important early work experience. There's something too. It seems to me a a, a question of first principles when it comes to. Uh, trying to explain the Biden administration and, and the left's posture on immigration policy. And it's, it goes back to something I said at the top. I think this is it, but you correct me if I'm wrong. Is, is it your position that people in this country illegally should be entitled to the same benefits as American citizens or people otherwise in this country no. legally? And it seems to me that's their position. And another example of this is a, a program uh, that was uh, proposed by AOC and Chuck Schumer to reimburse families uh, of coronavirus victims up to $7,000 for funeral expenses, even if the death involved a person in this country illegally. Now, I'm sorry anybody dies, including a person in this country illegally, but the idea that taxpayers are on the hook for those expenses um, seems to me another indication that there we make no difference. I mean, it's backdoor open borders, isn't it? Uh, no, I, and you're you're correct, but I would like to take what you said even one step further. You just said that people who are in the country, the left wants to treat them equally to American citizens. I would like to. I think they treat them preferentially. And mm-hmm. if you look at especially a lot of liberal judges uh, around the country, what they'll do often is because if you convict someone who's in the country illegally of a certain level of crime, you know, mandating a certain jail sentence, it, it triggers an automatic deportation. So oftentimes judges will give a very lenient sentence to someone who's here in the country illegally because, oh, my gosh, we wouldn't want poor so-and-so. To be deported, right? So I would actually say that in many cases, people who come in here illegally are actually treated preferentially, not just in the court system, but also in terms of hiring preferences. I mean, how many times have you heard the term diversity and inclusion lately? And you know, guess guess who that includes hiring preferences for? Guess who that includes uh, preferences when you're applying to college for? Sure, if you've just arrived literally yesterday from you know Timbuktu or Guatemala or El Salvador or whatever, so long as you're the right skin color, I mean, it doesn't matter whether you're in the country you know legally or not. You should be entitled to hiring preferences, promotion preferences, preferences in applying to colleges, and who knows what else. So I would actually say that the left the left lionizes people who are in the country. Illegal immigrants are their heroes. They, they like them better than, they certainly like them better than Trump voters. If they could replace Trump voters with tens of millions of uh, people who are from developing countries around the world, they would take that trade in a heartbeat, don't you think? 
Yeah, I think so. I think that's what they're trying to do in part, isn't it? I, I mean, yes, and and, yes. and 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 also, to, I mean, the, the the symmetry since you brought up the criminal justice system is really interesting. Knock down the border wall and knock down all the prison walls too. We saw that this week with Corey Bush, the newly minted member of the squad from Missouri, um, invoking Martin Luther King in defense of prisoners at a St. Louis prison who rioted and, and vandalized the prison, complaining about conditions within the prison, and of course, she immediately took their side. I mean, they, they don't they want um, their voters in and their voters who are in, so to speak, out. Right. And not even just, uh, you know, not even just Trump voters. But I think also, you know, the the bedrock um, voting constituency uh, of the Democratic Party are African-Americans. There's no other demographic group that is more loyal to the Democratic Party than African-Americans. And yet, if you look at all of the available studies, even from ones that some very liberal think tanks, they all say that African-Americans are actually the group that is most harmed by failure to enforce borders. He is Dave Seminar, former diplomat, author of the forthcoming books, Footsteps of Federer, a fan's pilgrimage across seven Swiss cantons and ten acts, and Mad Travelers, a tale of wanderlust, greed, and the quest to reach the ends of the earth. Those books are available for pre-order at DaveSeminara.com. That's Dave, S-E-M-I-N-A-R-A, DaveSeminara.com. Dave, thanks for joining us again. Appreciate it. Thank you, Dan. Take care. Grab a good seat and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We have spent a lot of time on this program talking about uh, draconian COVID policies, spike in violent crime, the flight from density, all of these, uh, the power of the teachers' unions controlling the maleducation, if at any education at all, of young people in big cities. Well, no one has a higher combined score than Chicago on those fronts. And so it's interesting that Chicago finally is uh, reached some sort of accord with the teachers union to begin to phase in the reopening of K through eight education, pre-K through eight education over the next several weeks. No plans for high school, by the way, at this point. Still working on that more than a year in. And this has become a national story because, you know, the bad example usually provides the national basis or the basis for a national dialogue about it. And so Chicago has a lot of competition from New York and California, of course. But uh, as I said, if you look at all of those categories, nobody is putting up a higher score than Chicago, a higher score of dysfunction. Thinking about the schools and uh, the business community, normally you don't have anything but uh, propaganda in the local press in furtherance of the institutional powers, mainly government but also the C-suites that are in bed with government. It's, you know, microcosm, as I said, for many years during the Obama administration, all that uh, the Obama-Biden team did was export the Chicago model of governance writ large to D.C., and so that persists. So it's unusual for the business community to be heard other than with sort of mealy-mouthed support for the institutional powers, sort of feigned optimism about the future. 
And uh, I note this piece at a blog called Chicago Contrarian. There's not many of those contrarians that is still in Chicago, where uh, some business executives actually spoke the truth about Chicago. Of course, they did so anonymously because nobody puts their name to anything in East Berlin on the lake. But nonetheless, it's interesting what they had to say. I wonder if this is similar to the culture in uh, New York, in L.A., other big cities. I suspect it is to some extent. But again, Chicago's has metastasized over 100 years of uninterrupted Democrat socialist rule, a combination now of machine plus Marxism. Uh, what uh, they talk about is a criminal free-for-all. What they talk about, these executives that shall be unnamed but uh, were quoted, is that we have not seen, don't really have a handle yet on the impact of the lockdown policies when it comes to things like commercial real estate. One uh, executive saying, you know, if I could, if, if I could or you could short commercial office space, this would be the time to do it. Uh, he goes on to say that... Uh, trying to assess the impact of both the lawlessness, the rioting over the summer. You know, you still have the main drags, main commercial drags, have many, many, many storefronts that are boarded up. But assessing the ultimate damage is still a bit elusive uh, because, as he recounts, our conversations with business owners suggest that unless prices drop precipitously, many firms will opt out of lease renewals altogether. In other words, it's too soon to call victory on the pandemic impact on city coffers from businesses. Yeah, well, here's the bottom line. It's real simple. If you're not growing, you're dying. And Chicago, New York, L.A., and um, the states in which they're located, not growing. Opposite of growth is death. Um, but something else crime. And this is going to get to a new crime initiative because uh, Chicago was also made national news, not just for the power of the teachers union to keep schools shuttered in spite of the science, but also because of violent crime and particularly in 2021, a dramatic increase in carjackings. So listen to what one executive told uh, the Chicago contrarian. If an assailant pulls a gun on me, I can get over it. My wallet is just cards and cash and my car is just a car. But if that happens to my employees, clients, or suppliers who are visiting our office, I would never forgive myself if we could have held a meeting virtually instead, especially if they could not respond with a level head and just give them, meaning the carjackers, what they wanted quickly. And so what has happened in Chicago, and I suspect this is the case elsewhere too, when you have a national increase uh, in murders year over year by more than 40%, being driven obviously by big urban centers, What's happened is that there's no more, you know, bad areas of Chicago that you have to look out for. Uh, neighborhoods that have unfortunately become shooting galleries on the west side or the south side of the city. It's the whole city, including the commercial strips, which is why the business executives are offering a very candid assessment of Chicago's future minus the customary happy talk. And what's the response from Mayor Lightfoot's police department, this alderman who has gotten into uh, profanity-laced exchanges with the mayor, uh, posted on Twitter a uh, memo from the deputy chief of uh, the area of Chicago Police Department, the, you know, the precinct that uh, impacts his aldermanic ward. 
Operation Safe Pump has been launched. District attack teams, community engagements, can bring some security to motorists during this crisis of vehicular hijacking. At least the police are calling it a crisis. Can bring some security to motorists during this crisis of vehicular hijacking by simply pumping gas for seniors. Each district should assign two tact cars, tactical, to a gas station for 30 minutes to one hour and pump gas for senior citizens. Operation Safe Pump is in effect. So because we don't have anything resembling Operation Prosecute Repeat Violent Offenders, now we're doing the police version of Midnight Basketball. Now we're asking police, in addition to being social workers and family counselors, oh, and law enforcement officers and uh, babysitters for rioters and looters, now you're also to be a gas station attendant. Uh, as uh, one criminal defense, criminal defense attorney uh, tweeted or texted to me upon hearing this, um, why not just have police drive the carjackers wherever they want to go? Yeah, to cut out the middleman, why don't you? And it's just going to be gas stations? Well, when you're telegraphing that the police are going to be at gas stations, uh, carjackers may make adjustments. So you're going to need Operation Safe Grocery Store, Operation Safe Parking Lot, Operation Safe Restaurant. This is the absurdities to which a city falls when it turns itself over to the mob for political reasons. And that's what Chicago has done. And to a lesser extent, that's what a lot of other big cities have done. And frankly, that is now being facilitated by the Biden administration, which, to repeat something that was mentioned last week but bears repeating, disbanding Operation Legend launched in the uh, final months of the Trump administration to provide federal law enforcement support, prosecutorial support to states and particularly big cities where you have a prosecutor that's not interested in prosecuting repeat violent offenders, as is the case in Chicago and Philadelphia and San Francisco and Baltimore and New York and L.A. and Seattle and Portland. This is Dan Proctor. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. House impeachment manager, Democrat Congressman Jamie Raskin, made uh, the case for the Democrats yesterday in day one of impeachment 2.0 and it was largely sentimentality and an emotional appeal for example and when they were finally rescued over an hour later by capitol officers and we were together i hugged them and i apologized and i told my daughter tabitha who's 24 and a brilliant algebra teacher in teach for america now i told her how sorry i was and i promised her that it would not be like this again the next time she came back to the Capitol with me. And you know what she said? I don't want to come back to the Capitol. <laughs> of all the terrible, brutal things I saw and I heard on that day, and since then, that one hit me the hardest. Well, uh, call me heartless, but I find, uh, and, and I'm sorry that the Raskin family has recently suffered the loss of a child, but uh, that doesn't excuse that sort of sophistry. 
and it shouldn't put Republicans on their heels. But unfortunately, President Trump's defense team apparently was not prepared for the Democrats' stock and trade when it comes to these matters. So here was Bruce Castor, who was first up on uh, the violence at the Capitol on, on January 6th. Before I begin, I, I want to comment on the uh, outstanding presentation from our opponents and the, uh, the emotion that certainly welled up uh, in Congressman Raskin about his family being here during that terrible day. And you will not hear any member of the team representing former President Trump say anything but in the strongest possible way denounce the violence of the rioters and those that breached the Capitol, the very citadel of our democracy. Um, That was an insufficient response. In fact, it was an ineffectual response as far as I'm concerned. That cedes the moral authority to Jamie Raskin and House Democrat Socialists that they do not occupy. There is no opposing party on the matter of what happened on January 6th or political violence generally. I mean, maybe there's some people on the margins, but not part of the legitimate discussion. So you have to compliment Jamie Raskin for his histrionics while trying to me to him like you're a guilty party. And it's not just Trump's legal team you're representing, which is something that was completely lost on Castor and Schoen. You're representing 74 million Trump voters in pertinent part because the left is pursuing the impeachment of 74 million voters, as far as I'm concerned. And so Castor offering obsequiousness on top of obsequiousness, then 10 minutes in, eight minutes into his 45-minute statement, he goes off on this seven-minute hagiography of former United States senators as well as current ones. Senators of the United States, they're not ordinary people. They're extraordinary people in the technical sense, extraordinary people. Uh Uh-huh. And recalling how he and his parents listened to Everett Dirksen's speeches on the record player back in the day, and all these senators today are patriots. Senators really are different. I have been around United States senators before. Two of them in this room from Pennsylvania, I like to think, are friendly toward me, or at least friends of mine when we're not politically adverse. And uh, he recalled how he was so wowed by the speeches from great men like Bob Dole and Bob Byrd. Good Lord. Uh, Alan Dershowitz was on Newsmax uh, in real time commenting on what he was seeing from Bruce Castor. There is no argument. I have no idea what he's doing. <clears throat> I have no idea why he's saying what he's saying. You know, he's introducing himself. I'm a nice guy. I like my senators. I know my senators. Senators are great people. Come on. The American people are entitled to an argument, a constitutional yeah. argument. I suspect it will be forthcoming from David Schoen. Uh, but this... Just after all kinds of very strong presentations on the part of the House managers with the videotapes and the emotional speech by Congressman Raskin, my former student, Mm -hmm. you know, you get up there and you respond. Uh, We know that hard cases make bad law. I probably would have started with that. This is a hard. And at least per what Dershowitz expected, uh, David Schoen did deliver. He, he did make a substantive, if uh, only workmanlike, case that the sort of norms of due process were violated. And there was a video attendant to that with Democrats calling for impeaching President Trump for everything under the sun 20 minutes into his administration, you know, starting with jaywalking across Pennsylvania Avenue. Um, So I thought that was perhaps the the best moment of the presentation on defense. But there weren't a lot of great ones. Uh, The the combined presentation of Trump's defense attorneys 
uh, had the effect of moving Republican Senator Bill Cassidy over to the Pat Toomey, Ben Sass, Mitt Romney camp of voting with Democrats to move this forward, saying the Senate does have jurisdiction to try a president once he's out of office. Uh, When we come back, we'll uh, continue the conversation on impeachment trial 2.0 with Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan, contributing editor at National Review and author of the bestseller Ball of Collusion. We'll be right back. Listen, the more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're now pleased to be joined by Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney in Manhattan, contributing editor to National Review, author of the bestseller Ball of Collusion, A Plot to Rig an Election and Destroy a Presidency. Andy, thanks as always for joining us. My pleasure. I know we we don't come to the same uh, conclusion about uh, impeachment in this matter, but I, I wonder what your assessment was of uh, both the presentations by specifically Representative Raskin and uh, and then Trump's defense team. Well, you know, I think, Dan, the first thing that you have to keep reminding yourself, it's political, it's not legal. I thought the House presentation was very effective. The playing the video, I thought, was a very smart thing to do. If you remember the last impeachment, it kind of opened with a bunch of dry, abstruse legal argument about what a uh, high crime and misdemeanor was. I think what they found when they looked at the television ratings was they lost most of the country after the first, uh, maybe even the first couple of hours, but you know, certainly the first day. And I've always thought as a trial lawyer and a prosecutor for a long time, the big advantage you have in a trial is you get to go first. You know, there's only one moment in a trial before everybody realizes that it's not all that exciting, that there's boring parts and technical parts and droning parts. There's one moment when you have everybody's rapt attention and you either capitalize it and you grab them or you don't. They understood that this is a political production, uh, not a normal trial, and they grabbed their audience when they uh, had that moment. So it was the right approach for them. And you have to understand that if this was a normal trial, Jamie Raskin would not be the prosecutor because he's a witness to the proceeding. His most effective speechifying to uh, the chamber was his very personal story about, you know, being under his own personal experience and his family's experience of being under siege and their reaction to that, that was all very gripping and dramatic and effective. It would have no place in a normal trial because if a lawyer is a witness, if he's an actor on the stage of the facts that are going to be played out in the trial, uh, he's not allowed to be a lawyer because that's unsworn testimony then. So you have to call it a trial because it's called a trial in the Constitution, but a Senate trial is simply not a judicial trial. And the norms of due process go out the window. And what you have to keep telling yourself is Trump is going to win in the end anyway. The outcome is done. It, 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 well, so, so, so this is what I'm telling you. So that's, you know, the, the, they didn't have a lot of time to prepare. You know, the, the, there are basics. You don't need any time to prepare. And point of fact, oh, since we've been talking about this for weeks, all the arguments are in the public arena. They could cut and paste uh, former appellate court judge Michael Luddig's Twitter thread on the constitutionality or lack thereof of the Senate impeaching a president out of office if they wanted to, you know, lodge their pro forma response on that topic. Uh, you know, Sean, as I said, gave fun 
decline. He, he made a statement about due process norms, which was appropriate, and there was some effort by Castor to raise uh, the issue of First Amendment uh, protections uh, and right. so forth. But, I mean, it was just such a – all they have to do is just kind of give the gentleman's C arguments on the topics at bar and sit down and call the question, and they didn't do that yesterday. Well, but you want them to be as effective as the other side. Yes, all those things are available, and any competent lawyer can go in and argue. You'd need about a day to master all of the things that have been written and then go in and argue the case on constitutionality. But at the same time, you could tell that Raskin and Ciccolini and Raguse, they've been living with this case for a couple of months. And it showed, you know, you, you may be right that all of this stuff is the kind of uh, information that a, a competent lawyer ought to be able to master in short order. But I think there was a pretty obvious difference yesterday between people who've been living with this case for a long time and people who look like they've been living with it for five minutes. I, I suppose that there's something to that. I, I don't know. I just you, you have to, it seems to me, be oblivious to what's been going on and in, in the discussions that have been going on in every quarter in this country about these various topics that are addressed by both sides to offer such a disjointed milk toast effort as was offered particularly by Castor. I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I mean, I'm just maybe I'm just yeah, well, the, beating on him too hard. No, he's. Look, I think, number one, it, in the long run, it doesn't make any difference because it's political. It's not legal. So the effectiveness of the lawyer is not going to make a big difference in the outcome. But I have to say, I, I almost fell out of my chair when Castor made the argument that there's no point in disqualifying Trump because the American people know how to do this. Uh, we just had an election and they and they booted him out of office when the whole reason we're at this point is that Trump claims that the election was stolen. So you have like the president out there saying the election is illegitimate. And you have his lawyer in the impeachment trial saying there's no reason to disqualify this guy because the American people can handle it. We just had a legitimate election where they booted him out. Yeah, well, right. So there's that aspect to it. And then there's the other aspect. And I think this is when Cruz leaned over and said, is he talking about what, you know, what's at bar right now, which is you know, whether we have jurisdiction and Cassidy's like not yet, um, was the idea that because you had an election where the, uh, the the target of the impeachment lost, that means that the argument about whether the Senate has jurisdiction is moot. And one has nothing to do with the other. And, and you have too many lawyers in the Senate that know better. Yeah, I think that's right. Although I keep going back to the same point, which is that we're treating this like it's a legal question. I know. And I just don't think it is. I think it's a political question. And I, I must say, I've in the last uh, week or so, I've looked at a lot of the old impeachment stuff. And what I'm struck by is the first impeachment in the United States was in 1797, the impeachment of Senator Blount. And the House impeached him, even though he was resigning and the Senate ended up uh, taking the trial and dismissing the case before having a trial on grounds which are dubious because they didn't make a good record. So you don't know whether they dismissed it because they didn't have jurisdiction because he wasn't a senator anymore. Or interestingly, if they dismissed it because as a senator, he wasn't a civil officer of the United States, that they made that conclusion. But I just think for all my friends who are making these textual arguments, the House of Representatives, eight years after we began constitutional governance, impeached a senator. 
if it was so clear that like a senator was not impeachable, the House wouldn't have impeached him. And these were guys who were acting within the fresh, not only were they acting within the fresh living memory of the Constitution, many members of Congress had been at the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia. So the very people who were involved in crafting the Constitution didn't think this was all so clear with respect to impeachment. I just think that uh, they just didn't give a lot of thought to this. Uh, All right. Andy McCarthy, former chief assistant U.S. attorney, Manhattan, contributing international view, author of the bestseller Ball of Collusion, the plot to rig an election and destroy a presidency. Andy, thanks as always. Appreciate it. Thanks. The podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We've got an update on the uh, Super Bowl streaker, and uh, this really just affords me the opportunity. The update's not that important. Just affords me the opportunity to uh, replay the Kevin Harlan call of the streaker during Sunday Super Bowl. Down 20, 5.03 to go. Someone has run on the field. Some guy with a brawl. And now he's not being chased. He's running down the middle of the 40. Arms in the air and a victory salute. He's pulling down his pants. Put up your pants, my man. Pull up those pants. He's being chased to the 30. He breaks a tackle from a security guard. The 20, down the middle, the 10, the 5. He slides at the 1, and they converge on him at the goal line. Pull up your pants, take off the bra, and be a man. And the players with hands on hips at the other end of the field are looking at him and shaking their head and saying, why, oh, why is this taking place in a Super Bowl? I was waiting for Jim Nance to uh, chime in with that was a win for the ages. But no, uh, regardless, uh, we find out that uh, this uh, the the guy who was streaking in the bra uh, with his pants down uh, is a 31 year old Boca de Raton resident who did so at the behest, reportedly, of some social media personality named Vitaly Sidorovetsky to promote uh, an adult website porn. Uh, and uh, apparently this Zdorovetsky guy is the same guy who ran onto the field during the 2017 World Series and onto the court during the 2014 NBA Finals. This is sort of what he does to generate attention for his uh, projects du jour, which probably is great marketing since uh, you got a call like that from Kevin Harlan and we're talking about it and a lot of other people are as well. And what, what was bail? 500 bucks, I think, to bond him out. Uh, There's also this, which is a little bit more dubious, as if that's possible. The suggestion is that the guy who was arrested, who was the streaker, the dude in the bra with his pants down, made a $50,000 bet on a prop bet at plus 750 that there would be a streaker at the Super Bowl. So if true, his $50,000 prop bet would have won him 375 grand which is a pretty good return on investment for a $500 bond out and whatever the court costs are for you know, the misdemeanor, uh, the misdemeanor trespass charge he'll face. And, and, and so this was circulating on social media yesterday, but I, I was skeptical of it. And then there was some reporting on this too. A uh, couple of, of bookmakers in Vegas, as well as a reporter who covers sports books said uh, no book in their right mind would take $50,000 limits on a profit like that, nowhere close. And, um, <laughs> and he said, 
if there was one, if there was uh, a book that would take $50,000 on something like that, plus 750, knowing that he's not the only one, uh, Mr. The, the third, the guy who did the streaking, he's not the only one who can do simple math. He, the, the one, uh, spokesperson for a sports book said, if there had been a $50,000 limit for that prop bet and prop bets like it, I'd have been right there next to him in the pink tutu. So probably not the case that he made a $50,000 bet to streak and cleared 375 grand on it. But, uh, well, at minimum, he got, uh, probably more than $375,000 worth of attention for the guy's porn site that he struck for, if that's a proper way to characterize it. This is Dan Proff. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. Earlier in the program, when we were talking with former Wisconsin Governor Scott Walker, we discussed uh, the op-ed in the Wall Street Journal from uh, Jason Riley on the performance of charter schools, both in New York City as well as nationally. And uh, Riley went on to address some of the specious arguments made by teacher, the teachers' unions and their acolytes in the direction of charter schools that turn out just not to be true. I want to continue that conversation with somebody who's an expert in this space as well and uh, has a long history of uh, fighting the fight for education reform to the benefit of people who are not being afforded the opportunity to earn a quality education. He is Chris Stewart. He's the CEO of the education nonprofit Brightbeam. And he joins us now. Chris, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Hey, it's great to be with you. Uh, school choice programs are the white man's effort to defund public schools so that black and brown children can't get a quality education. <laughs> yeah, that's one of many really effective and common arguments that are made against school choice. I would also say bizarre just because you have many people nationally who work in networks where they are funding efforts to create new schools, create new opportunities for kids in places where the schools have just failed them for generations. And there's not a lot of return on investment on that money, time, and effort of the people that create charter schools and um, spend their all their days thinking about how to get kids to college in places where they're just not getting to college. So it's a bizarre argument, but it works because, you know, teachers' unions, have foot soldiers, they have people on the ground who do hand-to-hand combat. Teachers are very trusted in their communities. They're speaking directly with parents, and they're saying, you know, those evil guys over there, they're attempting to get you an education. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Right. They They want you to go to the same school that they went to. You know, that millionaire... He wants you to go to the same school that his kids are going to. You see how racist that is? I, I just, the, yeah. the logic escapes me. It's terrible logic, but it works in a lot of places because, I mean, as Americans, we are inherently, I think, in some ways distrustful of big efforts, big government, big tech. So it works just to say, hey, I'm your neighborhood teacher. I'm the person who's been teaching you for, for a long time. You know you can trust me. And I'm telling you that they're trying to destroy public education. The unfortunate thing about that argument and that way of engaging with the community is that we don't have time for that. We have generations and generations of human potential that's being lost in places year after year, you know, in cities are without great schools in some places. And that's a shame. But but do you see, I mean, you know, it's not going as fast as I would like, as a lot of people would like, as I'm sure you would like in terms of educational choice. But do you see the teachers unions as the proverbial little Dutch boy with their uh, collective finger in the dike that it's happening 
the logic of their arguments is increasingly untenable. Uh, more and more parents are, you know, just by seeing the experience of their friends and neighbors and so forth, are uh, seeing the lie of what is being fed them and are interested in pursuing opportunities for their kids, whether through a charter or through a scholarship program. I mean, isn't it just, is it sort of, a, I, I have a sense of urgency and we should have a sense of urgency, but isn't really just a matter of time? Haven't they already lost the argument? They just haven't conceded defeat? You know, I, I would like to think that you're right. You know, I would love to say yes, but they are a formidable opponent. They are winning in places where they should not be winning. Mm. They have politicians and people who write legislation at, at the state level who are worried that they won't win their seat again if they write the wrong piece of school choice legislation, for instance. We do see things passing in some places, especially with the pandemic. There's more appetite, I think, in the public for parents having more power over how they get to say, you know, for instance, how the per pupil income works for their students. But it's not enough to make me hopeful knowing, just knowing how political and how big the war chest is for teachers unions and how many politicians owe their seats to the teachers unions because they have entire yeah. cities on lock. Yeah, you're right. I mean, I, I, I live in one in Chicago, but but uh, although the, there are charter schools and there is a tax credit scholarship program, but it's certainly not on the scale that is required uh, to lift people out of uh, terrible schools, no question. But uh, how do they, in your, your estimation, you, your perspective on this, how do they marginalize leadership from minority families, uh, the experience of minority families? I mean, when you're talking about hundreds of thousands in places like Florida or Arizona, when you're talking about high-profile individuals like Virginia Walden Ford in, in Washington, D.C., with the D.C. Scholarship Program, have they just effectively characterized them as sort of like the anomalous or token black Republican or something, and they're not to be dismissed? Are they to be dismissed? They're not to be taken seriously? No, they absolutely trivialize, personalize, marginalize any people within neighborhoods. I mean, look, the best marketing for them is that they're down with people. They're in the hood and, you know, they're organizing people. But what they're doing is curating people over long periods of time. They're forming yeah. long-term relationships with people. They're getting them onto school boards and then onto state as state rep, you know, and they're saying, hey, remember, we were the, the ones there for you from the very get-go. So they're selective about who they work with at the grassroots. And listen, you're in Chicago. I mean, it's a perfect place where you see that, that Chicago exports teacher unionism strategies and tactics to other cities, to other places. So you guys kind of are the ground zero for their tactics. It feels like they're starting to lose some ground there, like the mayor and others are starting to stand up just a little bit to them. But at the end of the day, they still are very good at making their agenda sound like the agenda of the poor. Um, we're fighting for your schools. I, I saw the dumbest thing from your city. It was They said that the attempt to reopen schools was rooted in sexism and racism and white supremacy. Right. Everything is. The attempt to open the schools. Now, get your mind around that. Did right. you ever think in your lifetime you would see a time where keeping public schools open was seen by the teachers union as a as racist? Well, that's unsafe, so they say, and, and therefore we're trying to harm black kids and black families. That's that's what we are doing. You know, the, the we who are not in charge of the system in any way. <laughs> I mean, it's right. a black right. mayor, black Cook County Board president, black prosecutor, and so on and so forth. The, you know, the city council, there's not a Republican in office, you know, uh, in the northern northeastern part of the state, basically. But somehow, you know, white supremacy is rearing its ugly head with respect to CPS operating. I mean, but it, it doesn't matter, it seems to me how in 
how absurd their contentions are. If they play the race card, they get their way. Yeah, you know, and this is to your earlier question about whether things are starting to shift a little bit. I think things like the pandemic are getting to be such a pain, such a point, uh, pain and point for parents that they're not going to they're not going to be they're not going to be patient forever with the teachers union around these type of things. There are literally families that are losing everything because they don't they can't put their kids in school. Um, And there are states that are attempting to get resources to those families in the form of vouchers and in the form of um, education savings accounts and other ways for them to be able to have the the education dollars necessary. And I don't think that parents are going to put up with forever teachers unions blocking vouchers, blocking charter schools, blocking educational opportunity, and wanting to keep the schools closed at the same time. So uh, what what do those who are interested in supporting the school choice movement uh, do in addition to contributing to tax credit scholarship funds that have been set up and supporting legislation at the state level? At the, at the city level, where the situation is the most pronounced, it seems to me like what you're saying is we need sort of neighborhood infrastructure. We need people on the ground that have credibility in the neighborhoods uh, telling an alternative story, addressing the arguments that are being made and uh, uh, straight away so that people understand what the what the real issues are and what the real opportunities are. I think we absolutely need people to start speaking um, honestly with their friends, their neighbors, their churches, their pastors. Um, to get people who have social capital and intellectual capital to start standing out front. Uh, I do want to, again, say pastors, clergy, other people that are, you know, that have uh, respect in your communities. I don't care what your social location is, what your race is, what your background, anyone listening to this and hearing this right now, I don't ever want anyone to think, well, I'm to this or I'm to that to be able to speak out on these issues. This is, this is really about, uh, every kid in America getting um, a first world education, which is possible, and us not providing it right now. So that's a moral failure on our part. Shame on us if we say nothing about it. Um, and the things that we should really be saying should be plain. We should speak very plain. We should speak about um, we should be funding families, not funding systems, especially systems that have done them harm forever. We should be um, making sure that that every parent has um, pathways to opportunity, educational opportunity, because right now we have many parents that are redlined into really uh, terrible educational options. And we have to break that down. We, we have to get rid of the boundaries, the lines, the rules, the, the enrollment procedures. All that has to take second, you know, second seat to are we getting every kid and every family the resources they need to make good decisions and to have good choices in education? Chris Stewart, CEO of the education nonprofit Brightbeam. Chris, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. And thank you so much. Appreciate it. Take care. This portion is sponsored by the American Federation for Children, the nation's largest school choice advocacy organization, helping every family choose the best K-12 education for their children. Find them on social media at School Choice Now. That's at School Choice Now. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show
Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. Current Delta CEO Ed Bastian was uh, allowed to come on CNN because Delta is the only airline that's still keeping the uh, middle seat open. Yeah, they don't care about profits, so they were allowed to come on CNN, which ironically does care about profits. Just ask Jeffrey Zucker. And uh, Mr. Bastian was asked by the fungible numbskull at the desk at CNN uh, whether or not uh, he would be supportive of what is being bandied about by uh, Mayor Pete, the new transportation secretary, and others in the Biden administration requiring a negative COVID test in order to fly domestically. And here's what Ed Bastian had to say. I think it'd be a horrible idea uh, for a lot of reasons. Uh, First and foremost, we're carrying as a U.S. industry uh, over a million people a day on average. And and that number is starting to to grow again, which which we'd like to see. Uh, Travel domestically in the air transportation system is the safest form of transportation. I think we all know that. Uh, Incidents of spread aboard any of our planes is is absolutely minimal. In fact, very, very few documented cases globally, not just domestically. And it would also take probably about 10 percent of the testing resources that this country needs to do to test sick people away from those people. It's hard to get tests. Uh, there's days of delay still. Uh, I think it would be a logistical nightmare and would set the trans- not just the tra- transportation uh, and travel industry back, but the whole hospitality sector, the hotels. Um, it set us back at least probably another year in the recovery. It will not keep domestic flyers safe here. If anything, it's going to keep people away from what they need to do, which is in terms of, uh, you know, starting to get back out, you know, for not just essential travel, but people need to start reclaiming their lives and uh, taking testing resources away from those truly in need, I think would be a terrible decision. Huh. I don't even know what Ed Bastian is talking about. Since when does the science... Since when does the highest best use of scarce resources, since when's, when does anything resembling a conversation of, about balancing uh, security for people's individual freedom, when, when does that have anything to do with talking about COVID policy? I mean, especially on CNN. Everything that Ed Bastian said has no quarter on CNN or MSNBC or in the halls of power of big blue states and big blue cities, does it? And, and, oh, by the way, including the big blue territory of the District of Columbia these days. Am I wrong? For more on this, we're pleased to be joined again by Alex Berenson, former New York Times reporter, author of the number one bestseller, Unreported Truths About COVID-19 and Lockdowns. And he, there's a combined uh, parts one through three, death counts, lockdowns and masks. But now I'm afraid Alex Berenson may be giving up on us because his new book, he's going back to writing spy novels, The Power Couple, a novel, is uh, his book released February 9th. So you want to check that out, too. He has, He's not just one, you know, one-trick pony. Alex Berenson, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. And d- d- don't tell me you're going back to spy novels to the exclusion of continuing your work on COVID. No, no. So I wrote this book in 2018 and 2019. It's basically set in 2019 in the pre-COVID world. And it's not really a political book. My novels in general are not political. I mean, they're set in the world of espionage, so there's going to be some political backdrop, but they're not political. And this one really is not political. It's really, really about this husband and wife, and they're in Barcelona with their kids for their 20th wedding anniversary, and their daughter goes missing, and they have to figure out what's going on. It turns out to be really about the marriage and the secrets in the marriage. So you can see that's not a political book. It's nothing to do with COVID. Has Liam Neeson been cast for the uh, the male <laughs> character yet? There is a bit of a taken meets gone girl vibe in here. I'm 
learned a lot. <laughs> but, but so, so you know, look, this is my 13th novel. My previous novels were all bestsellers. They all got, you know, review attention. I'm not saying they all got great reviews, but people reviewed them. They were taken seriously. This book has essentially been ignored by the New York Times and the Washington Post and the Associated Press, USA Today. All the places that normally at least, you know, consider taking a look at my work have ignored it. And I can only presume, I hate well, yeah. to think this way. That this has something to do with well, the fact that I've challenged the narrative on COVID, that, well, that, that my novel is being punished for this. Well, you're talking nonsense about COVID like Ed Bastian. I mean, we can't be <laughs> listening to people like you reading your work. You know, until you see cancel culture, and I don't know if this cancel is maybe more of the ignore culture, I don't know how to describe it, from the inside, it's insidious because... This is me being punished in a way that has nothing to do with COVID. You can disagree with me about COVID if you like. And, uh, you know, it's just the media sort of using its power to push back on somebody or to hurt somebody who doesn't follow the narrative. I'm not saying I know this. No one has come out to me and said this, although, of course, they would not. But it is it's hard for me to see another explanation. Well, let's uh, let's talk about it. Let's go back to what Ed Bastian over at Delta had to say about uh, things. Gosh, he's invoking things I, I uh, didn't think mattered, as I said at the outset, like uh, transmission rates on domestic flights, like balancing scarce resources when it comes to testing, like trying to balance uh, safety with people living their lives. Uh, I mean, the, the, those are the sorts of uh, uh, metrics that are only given quarter in conservative talk arenas, too, not usually on CNN. It's amazing. The idea that you would force people taking domestic flights to get a COVID test is a joke. Where is the evidence that airplanes are a major vector for the transmission of COVID? That's A. B is this thing is everywhere, okay? It's in every one of the 50 United States. It's all over the place. So what are we trying to prevent here? People who are likely asymptomatic from getting on a plane? I mean, if you're feeling lousy, don't get on the plane, and we already know that. But what are we trying to do here aside from destroy the domestic aviation industry? And, well, and I'll say one more thing. Yeah. Flying is so much safer than driving that if this pushes people to drive instead of fly, it will kill people. That's a good point, too. And and, and some response to this has been, well, oh, good. Well, then if we get the negative COVID test, then we don't have to wear a mask on the flight. <laughs> oh, not so no, fast. Right. No, no, no. Didn't you not hear Jen Psaki say that uh, even after you get vaccinated, you have to wear a mask and social distance? Tony Fauci is giving us some hope that maybe if everything goes right, according to him, and there's no scintilla of COVID-19 in the Western world, maybe we can relax the uh, mask mandates. Maybe you can go down from three or two masks to one mask by the fall. Do any of these people, are any of them looking at the data, not in the last year, even in the last month? Is anybody aware that right now the hospitals are emptying out of COVID patients in the United States and then positive tests are down, I think, almost two-thirds since the beginning of January? I mean, it looks like this wave of the epidemic is over. And whether or not we'll see another one, I don't know. But you can make a plausible case that half the country now has been infected from and recovered from COVID. Forget vaccines. I'm just talking about people who recovered naturally from COVID, because we know that that 26 million number is a huge understatement, whether it's a factor of four or a factor of eight, it's a huge understatement. Well, I, I don't know. I just can't get over uh, Tom Brady not wearing a mask going into uh, the stadium in, in Tampa uh, for Super Bowl. It was such an opportunity for him to uh, lead by example, and, and he didn't do it. Uh, in, in addition to his dad not wearing a mask when he came down on the field to congratulate his son on his seventh Super Bowl title. I mean, that's that's the real issue when it comes to COVID is our, our, our heroes not uh, providing a better example uh, along the lines of our heroes in the public health space and the Twitter sphere and Dorsey world. You know, the, our real heroes, those that are promoting uh, and minding other people with respect to mask wearing and the like. 
Yeah, our hero's like next Surgeon General of the United States, assuming he's approved, who took more than a million dollars last year to consult and speak about COVID. This is big business, and don't forget it. And the people who are making a lot of money off of it don't want it to go away. I mean, I, I, you know, I hate to be that cynical about it, but certainly when you hear them talk about it, they don't want it to go away. And they want to beat up on people like me who stand up and say we need to return to normalcy. When we come back with former New York Times reporter and New York Times bestselling author Alex Berenson, I uh, will get his comment on Jen Psaki saying masks will be required even after vaccination. Will this ever end? No. More with Alex Berenson right after this. Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. We're talking all things COVID-19 with New York Times bestselling author Alex Berenson. And uh, Alex, I want to go back and get your comment on a pronouncement from the White House press secretary the other day that masks will be required, as will social distancing, even after someone is vaccinated. And the implication that it will also be uh, required for a person who has been infected and recovered. So how is someone to understand this other than that it will go on the COVID-19 restrictions will go on in perpetuity? That's right. And if you've already had it, you need to be vaccinated and you need to wear a mask. When did the human immune system stop functioning? I, I missed that. Was that in March 2020? I don't know when that happened. One of what, you know, one thing about the power couple, I, I have to say this. I went, I was going back and reading it because, you know, I know the book's coming out. I know there's interviews. We have to get back to life before COVID. There are people who are going to get sick and die from this. We know that. This cannot be allowed to destroy society. The, the, the remarkable thing to me, Alex, too, I mean, just flying off that, is is it, it's inversely proportional to good news. The, the better the news is, the more hysterical the make-believers, uh, the lockdowners get, uh, whether it's uh, the J&J vaccine coming online uh, or, uh, you, as you were describing earlier, the drop in the number of infections, both in the U.K. and the U.S., as soon as we're making any sort of progress towards a compelling case or a more compelling case to more quickly reopen society, that's when you really get the hysterics and the virtue signaling and the virtue shaming and, the you know, we're going to be in this for a long while yet, so just hunker down. Yes, you know, that Michael Osterholm, who's, a, who's an epidemiologist, who's, you know, who's advising Joe Biden. He's not a nobody. You know, he's one of the great hysterics about this. this is, I mean, this has been going on for so long now. It is, hard, it is hard to almost remember how many times these people have been wrong. And again, look, we have issues with COVID. We have to have our, make sure our hospitals can manage it. But, but, you know, there's never been a situation in the United States in the last year where hospitals, regional hospital systems have been close to collapse, okay? The field, you don't hear about field hospitals anymore, right? Because they basically went unused. What you hear is that, you know, that doctors and nurses are working hard, and they are working hard, and we should be thankful to them for that, and we should pay them well, and we should respect them. But this is a medical problem, not a societal problem. We've made it a societal problem. I want to go back to uh, what we started the conversation about, which is sort of those who don't have the proper opinion um 
of, say, your former employer, the New York Times, get marginalized. The uh, firing of uh, Donald McNeil from the New York Times, and this was you know, people rallying into defense. This is part of the purge. Apparently he was fired because a couple of years ago he used a racial slur uh, in a conversation with a colleague about what racial slurs you shouldn't use, like this one. Uh, but yeah. the context, of course, doesn't matter. But I also have crocodile tears for Don McNeil because it turns out that he was one of the, and he's the science reporter for the New York Times, or was, uh, he was one of the early hysterics on this with all sorts of apocalyptic statements that turned out not to be true. And Jeffrey Tucker over at uh, American Institute for Economic Research had a good write-up on some of the things he said in the spring of last year where he believed that we needed, you know, Zeke Emanuel style lockdowns for 18 months. And he predicted the two and a half percent mortality rate. So about 25 times the actual rate and so on and so forth. This was one of the uh, the lead hysterics. And so, uh, yes, it, it, I just want to include that because I see some people talking about this as, you know, an example of the purge. Well, number one, anybody who gets fired from The New York Times um, you know, I have little empathy. Number two, just as a matter of course, and number two, this guy, you know, with his outsized platform based on his understanding of the situation is culpable for the hysteria that has taken hold in some quarters where people are you know, beyond the reach of reason. So, so, so Don McNeil wasn't the worst. You know, he did have a huge platform, and he was one of the members of a team of team apocalypse. He was he pushed and he wrote stuff that was wrong. And by the way, back in May of last year, he called for uh, Dr. Redfield to be fired from. The, so he's not afraid to call for people to be canceled and fired. So you know, should he have been forced out for using that word in the context he used it? No, but this is the times in which we live. And once I once it became public, I was pretty sure that he was going his job was done. Even though the Times obviously didn't want to let him go. That's where we are right now. And so, you know, we I think all of us who believe in truth and look, there may be things I'm wrong about. There may be things you're wrong about, Dan, yeah. but we are speaking our minds and trying to be honest. And we should be allowed to debate and present our opinions. And it is wrong to try to force, you know, to try to force you not to speak, to try not to talk about a book of mine because you don't like what I'm saying about COVID. This, this, we need to say this shouldn't happen anymore. Uh, and and we sh need not uh, worry about cannibals being cannibalized. Uh, Alex uh, Berenson, at Alex Berenson, follow him on Twitter, former New York Times reporter, author of the number one bestseller, Unreported Truths About COVID-19 and Lockdowns, uh, three parts, death counts, lockdowns, and masks. You want to pick that up. And also his uh, new novel, The Power Couple, a novel that was just released this week. Alex, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. I'll stop Listen, the more you'll know, this is, this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. This is um, quite an interesting op-ed in Newsweek from a professor of public policy at Davidson College named Isaac Bailey. I'm struggling with my Christianity after Trump. He's struggling with his Christianity after Trump, writing, I'm struggling to hold fast to my Christianity because of Donald Trump, not exactly Trump himself, but the undying support of the self-professed Christian pro-life movement that he enjoyed. My faith is in tatters because of that alliance. And he's really talking about the white evangelical church mainly. And I'm constantly wondering if I'm directly complicit because I dedicated my life to the same Jesus the insurrectionists pray to in the Capitol building after ransacking it and promising to kill those who didn't do their bidding. Hmm. 
and you um, pray to the same Jesus that's invoked by the pro-abortion, uh, pro-death-with-dignity euthanasia leftists, too. I mean, Jesus can be invoked by a lot of people for cover for things that are not Christ-like. Wouldn't you agree, Professor? So what's so complicated? And what's so complicated about sort of an imperfect vessel being one that, out of necessity, pro-lifers and Christians hitch their wagons to for a temporary period of time in order to advance their worldview, in order to advance the position you say you hold, which is one of the sanctity of human life from the womb to the tomb. Huh. He continues, if Christianity can convince so many to follow a man like Trump almost worshipfully, what good is it really? So because Trump was elected president, Christians supported Trump, what good is it really? What good is the faith? The faith is undermined by a political outcome, by an election. It'd be interesting, actually, to go chapter and verse on policies. He offers some policies in support of his open wondering about his faith, which I'll get to. But um, things like the Abraham Accords, I mean, th this is the same uh, Trump of, of flawed character that he's criticizing, generally speaking. What about when Trump was the vehicle for policies that advance peace in our world. Uh, like I think almost unanimously, there would be agreement that the Abraham Accords did, for example. Hmm. I uh, say all of this, he writes, as someone who has been Christian all my life, who spent two decades praying in a white evangelical church, how could our faith have allowed this, encouraged it, enabled so much violence and so much death? Well, I, again, I mean, I he's sort of being, I mean, this is a professor at Davidson College. This is not an unsophisticated person, so I can only assume he's being a bit disingenuous or he's sort of cherry-picking the landscape. The choice was between Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. And what was the record of Hillary Clinton when it came to destruction and death and policies uh, that advanced destruction and death, whether it was war in the Middle East or uh, leaving Americans to die in Benghazi and lying about it or pro-abortion, pro euthanasia positions, on again, off again, support for the death penalty. What about uh, the uh, 1994 crime bill that's so criticized, particularly by black Americans, that uh, Joe Biden had to navigate in order to win the presidency, didn't he? Well, that was a Clinton-era legislative measure, wasn't it? Um, very stilted is his analysis of not only the choices that were made, but the choices that were available to Christian Americans. He uh, goes on to also, just on the pro-life thing, this is really interesting. Well, first, I mean, sort of belying his uh, political disposition as seemingly a social justice evangelical. Uh, I don't know how you otherwise reconcile his stated exploration, personal reflection on his faith with a statement like, he, Trump, presided over more than 460,000 COVID-19 deaths, far outpacing any other industrialized country. Well, I, without getting into the particulars about uh, per capita and so forth, the idea that the, that carnage caused by a virus is laid at the foot, at the feet of any one man is just absurd. Any more than I would lay the death toll from Ebola or H1N1 at the feet of President Obama. It's just ridiculous. He talks about um, a man who picked up an AR-15-style assault rifle and committed a massacre in the Tree of Life Synagogue in Pittsburgh after becoming convinced Jews were responsible for the despised caravan of vulnerable brown people. Right. 
you'll recall the rabbi of that synagogue welcomed President Trump's visit with open arms, despite some who didn't, and appreciated what President Trump had to say. The, the rabbi of the Tree of Life synagogue did not lay blame at President Trump's feet. I wonder if Professor Bailey would lay blame at Bernie Sanders' feet for the Bernie Sanders supporter who shot up that uh, baseball practice, uh, almost killing Steve Scalise. Hmm. He uh, and then, of course, he, you know, repeats the characterization of January sixth as um, an incitement as a Trump incited insurrection. Talks also about fast tracking federal executions during the final months of his presidency. I'm against the death penalty, so I mean, I agree with him generally speaking on that. But um, do you want to go through Democrats and Republicans who support the death penalty? Something supported by about eighty percent of the populace. And he also said this, even the abortion rate slightly increased in the middle of Trump's term, a reversal from major declines during Obama's two terms in office. When uh, they mean, what, what do they mean by pro-life is that Trump was anti-abortion, yet there's no evidence that putting a pro-life president in the White House drastically affects the abortion rate, which has been falling steadily for most of my life, but faster during Democratic administrations. Yeah. Well, that is um, fun with numbers, isn't it? And uh, a complete willful blindness about culture, particularly when it's uh, his community, the African-American community, that is uh, leading the nation in per capita abortions. And that's not at the behest of pro-lifers. That wasn't at the behest of President Trump, quite the opposite, which I I assume is why he's pro-life in part two, is faith plus the devastation that uh, the breakup of the nuclear family has wrought in the black community and now writ large in America generally. The combination of abortion and illegitimacy and divorce. It's just, uh, I, I hope we can get him on the show. I've asked our producer to reach out to him because I really would like to explore this given where he says he's starting from, and I take him at his word. But um, just the, the very, uh, the tunnel vision with which, with which he prosecutes the argument of why he would be questioning his faith because of our politics I don't think he has an appreciation for where faith is in the sort of hierarchical, well, not just the hierarchy, the hierarchy of needs, but, but where it is in the hierarchy of importance. Your politics is subordinate to your faith. Your faith is not subordinate to politics. So maybe that's where the confusion begins and generates so much more confusion. This is Dan Paul. of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the program. Uh, yesterday we spoke with Tom Wood from the Mises Institute about his uh, book series, Your Facebook Friends Don't Know Anything About Fill-in-the-Blank, for example, COVID-19. I think I may uh, start a competing book series the blue check Twitter mafia doesn't know anything about fill in the blank. Let's start with COVID-19. Good piece by Joe Kinsey over at outkick.com, Clay Travis's uh, site, um, about the blue check mafia that uh, wanted to kill the NFL season and thought it wasn't going to happen. 
There were, uh, he writes, does Kinsey, there were a bunch of blue checkmark sports journalist nerds who spent the past seven or eight months rooting against the shield, the NFL. They said life couldn't go on due to COVID. They said the world would end if Roger Goodell and his crew held a football season. They predicted death. They predicted financial ruin. They said alcohol couldn't be served because fans would have to take too many leaks. Seriously, Peter King, Sports Illustrated, wrote that. He hypothesized that not serving alcohol at games would lead to fewer restroom trips, which would mean fewer chances to spread the vid. I'm not making this up. The headlines are in stone. Peter, Peter King's words are in stone. We had New York politicians predicting carnage if Bills fans were allowed inside Ralph Wilson Stadium. Then it turned out when they started testing Bills fans during the height of the COVID around the world, the Blue Check Mafia returned a positivity rate of under 2%. The World Health Organization recommends a positivity rate under 5% for governments to consider reopening their cities. Suddenly, the light switch went off and Cuomo said that he murdered the state's economy and was sitting at 1.9 positivity rate amongst these maniac Bills fans who'd been partying amongst each other in secret locations for months to avoid the New York State vid police. And, of course, when the Bills made the playoffs, he allowed for the opening of Ralph Wilson Stadium to some percentage of this, this, the stadium's capacity for fans. And he's got a great rundown here. I'll tweet this out of just all of the Keith Oberman just canceled the NFL season already. This is November 30th. Adam Schefter, ESPN, ripping the NFL for proceeding with business as usual amid, quote unquote, carnage in the streets. The hysteria, the sports press corps, a adjunct of the D.C. press corps, the corporate press corps. So many examples that uh, that he uh, cuts and pastes. Fauci cast doubt on football this fall. Playing football in 2020 would mean prioritizing financial interests over health and safety. Story in Reuters: The NFL should pause the positive season. That pause the season after Cam Newton's positive COVID-19 test, October 30th, 2020. The uh, New York Times: Do we need football in America this badly? Can the federal government block the NFL from playing its season? And other burning questions about the NFL's bid to return. This is going all the way back to June when they started beating the drum against the NFL, uh, preordaining uh, things that they had no idea, no basis to make such uh, claims about. It's, just, it's fascinating. It's great to have some institutional memory in the media about not just the corporate media inside the Beltway, but about those who wish they were part of the corporate media and who cover sports, and frankly, who are doing just about as good a job of driving people away from professional sports as so many of the athletes themselves. Thank you for joining us on another edition of the Dan Prof Show. Please do so again tomorrow and continue to stay informed so you can be brave and we can live free. Talk to you tomorrow. This is the Dan Prof Show.